Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candice, the field coordinator with the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program, and I'm here today with one of our awesome volunteers, Ben, to talk about his article, Skating By and Looking Good. You can find the article in the show notes to today's episode, and now we'll jump right into the conversation. Ben, thanks so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Definitely. So just right out of the gate, tell me about being special. <laughs> well, there's one, there's a quote that I always like to say, and it, and it really, I, I can relate to it well, which is, I may not be much, but I'm all I ever think about. And I have kind of felt that I was special. And I guess because I sometimes just didn't think that rules applied to me. That was kind of a, a big issue for me, my drinking and partying and, and getting out of problems and not facing consequences. And I think not facing consequences or having those kinds of problems or pain, so to speak, to try to help you with the change. Sometimes you just keep going. And that, and that was kind of my way of doing things. Yeah. When you're invincible, it's really hard <laughs> to worry about things. That's right. You know, and, and it started, you know, it started in high school, really when I started drinking, you know, I started drinking heavily, not every day, but like a binge type drinking when I was 15 and give you an example of consequences that wouldn't apply to me. I mean, I grew up in a small town, out drinking one night with friends, driving the car, get pulled over, and the cop just knew who we were in a small town. My dad was a lawyer there, so it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll help you get home. Don't worry about it. You know, those types of little things are just kind of that reinforcing that, hey, man, you, the rules don't apply to you. You just get away with what you want. And that's a dangerous outlook on life. Sure. And do you have any examples of when you started to, or did you start to experience any consequences? Yeah. And, I, and, and even those consequences themselves were mitigated for me. So a lot of things in, in recovery, and we use a lot of the same things over and over again, but, it, but they were so good. And one of the ones that I like that kind of sums that up is that it's every time I drank, I did not get in trouble, but every time I was in trouble, usually with the cops, I had been drinking. And that was a given common denominator in the consequences that I would pick up, but they were mitigated. So for example, like open container tickets at the beach, even an actual DUI in college. These are all these kind of signs and consequences. Hey, your, your drinking is different than other people or your consequences sure is different than other people. But getting arrested for open containers, getting arrested for a DUI in college, but then having lawyers help me get out of it, plea deals, community cert, all of these things that I would do just to keep taking down the consequences, but absolutely not looking at what was the, the impetus for getting there. You know, everybody growing up, I was like, you either partied or you didn't party. And if you didn't party, I didn't want to hang out with you. You know, and I just wanted to hang out with people that partied simply because if they were partying like me, I certainly didn't have to look at my own stuff. Yeah, those non-partiers are not a fun mirror to look in. 
no. no. And, you know, when you're drinking and you're in that world and have been drinking, it's you, you think, at least I did, I thought that the whole world is about drinking. You know, if you're in this world where everything is a party and everything's about where you're going to go and you know, I used to hate going to concerts because you had to wait so long to get alcohol um, and but making plants, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's certainly wasn't a healthy type of behavior around alcohol. But once I got sober, you know, years later, I realized the world doesn't revolve around alcohol. And there, in fact, is very just small groups of kind of the where it does. But once you're when you're in those weeds and that's all you can see, that's all you think there is. And, and that was a big issue. One of the issues along my journey to get to recover, to stop drinking. That that issue being, you know, everything is about alcohol. It took some time to get to, to understand that it wasn't. But that was certainly one of the things that I would hold up and think that there's no way I can stop drinking because that's what we all do. And that's the whole world, you know. Sure. It's hard when those consequences are being mitigated or not sticking. Mm-hmm. And then you're in a sea of people like you. There's yes. not a lot of impetus to change. No, it's like an echo chamber. Um, yeah, and, and I'm jumping a little bit around on my timeline, but the, if I kind of go all the way toward to the end of my drinking, kind of when I was 31, 2008, 2007, and I was, but for the fact that I worked for family, you know, I would have been, I should have been fired. I, I should have, you know, not coming in on Monday and Tuesday for being too hungover in normal circumstances would have been an issue, but not for me. And that, again, is that same little, kind of that common thread that has haunted me that I've had to overcome. It's certainly what I had to overcome very quickly and get humble very quickly when I when it was time to get sober. So what humbled you? It doesn't sound like there's anyone around you kind of pointing the finger to the drinking. Right. What was your humbling experience? It, of course, much like a lot of us, it, it's always kind of a crisis that gets us in and my humbling experience was being in treatment, being at a mental institution, being there at for 158 days. And I certainly wasn't counting. That was humbling. Now, what got me there, it was a ridiculous story, but it, it wasn't the humbling that you were asking about. Because that because I can remember the feeling of the humbling, of the kind of that, some would say, surrender. I, just kind of like, oh, wow, okay, this is... This is something that I've got to deal with. But what got me there, of course, was um, another DUI. And that was, it would have been the third DUI arrest. It ultimately led to a conviction. The consequences of that, of course, are horrible in themselves. But the, the circumstances to give you an idea of how messed up in the head that I was, that I was special. This, is, this will tell you how special I thought I was. I had been drinking. It was a Thursday. I probably had been drinking most of the day because it was like it was like a party day or like a football game or something. And a friend of mine was coming into town. She was driving from Greenville and she got picked up for a DUI. You know, I, I enjoyed hanging out with, of course, other drinkers. Sure. Problem, excuse me, other problem drinkers. Um, <laughs> so uh, she gets picked up for a DUI and, and then calls me to come help her. You know, and I, I, I haven't practiced a day of criminal law in my life. I don't know anything about it. I think I maybe heard on the scene on the TV that you got to ask to calibrate the breathalyzer or whatever. You know, I had to come up with some things, put on a sports jacket as if that was some type of shield, shield of sobriety. Like, oh, okay, now I'm sober. I maybe even put on some reading glasses and then drove quite drunk to the police station in Nightdale. And I think 
you think about that level of delusion to think that that's okay, that you would get away with it, and to be a lawyer, that's messed up. It certainly wasn't messed up in my head at the time. And I think if you think about up to that 2009, at the culmination of this specialness, this, this kind of thing that we've talked about, which is really powerful, driving drunk to a police station, you know, arrest me, what are they going to do with me? You know? Well, they did. Thank God. <laughs> I love the fact that you get the phone call and your first thought is not, let me see if I can get her a criminal lawyer. It's, right. of course, I can fix the situation. Yeah, like, I can fix anything. It's and so hard. Yeah. You don't want anybody else getting credit. <laughs> no, no, it should, all, it should all be my credit. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the hubris involved in that. Just the layers of delusion. That's a great word to use, which is delusion in the, the top of addiction. And you're in a delusional state. Because that was so, real for you. Yeah, I mean, you had very reality. altruistic, you know, <laughs> goals, but in, in your mind, you were going to go there and of course, logically save her. And I save her oh, the big man, you know, but oh. I love that people looking in from the outside, you know, these stories seem crazy, but to other people in addiction, they're like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I understand why you would do that. Sense, right. You know, and I, you know, have a lot. To, not enough time on here to talk about things that I do have to be grateful for. And they are, you know, these stories are very are, are ridiculous and funny, but I'm very lucky that much worse things didn't happen or didn't mm-hmm. hurt other people. And, you know, a lot of people don't have that part of the story. It, well, it was only just a matter of time before that was going to get added to my story. I'm sure of it. Yeah, the yet's hadn't happened yet. Yeah, exactly. So you're arrested. That starts off a chain of events. But how do you intersect with LAP after that event? Well, part of my story is that even from law school, I had flirted with the idea. It really started in law school that that maybe I needed to stop drinking. There was an incident with my landlord. There was always an incident. And it was an incident that involved brown liquor. And I don't know, there's always a moment of a good alcoholic's moment of their story where they they are not going to drink liquor anymore and they're only going to drink beer and wine. So that was my moment where I stopped drinking liquor, but it led to an, it led to me getting some help going out to like the, the university of Mississippi when I was in Jackson I had like free psychologists that were residents talked to this guy. He suggested AA and I actually went to AA and I was probably what, 24, 25. And it was one of those stories where you go into the room and you're like, Oh my God, I don't relate to any of these people. They're they're alcoholics under a bridge. You know, this is nuts. Could not identify only looked at ways that I was not like them. And, but, you know, I put a little seed in my head as my, in my professional life in Raleigh during times where before this, before 2009, because of that seed, when I did have another issue and I, I reached out to a guy named Ed Ward, who was kind of a famous character at LAP. And so he, he knew of me and I was, I think I was on his radar. Of course, LAP didn't have anything on me. And so I was more just kind of testing it out. So when the, the driving drunk to the police station happened in 2009, me in my full self-preservation mode realized that it would look, now this is, this is, I'll remember exactly how I thought it would look better if I get convicted with the bar, if I had reached out to LAP. So I was willing to do whatever they said, including when I called 
Ed told me that I was going to be on the next flight that Friday to Atlanta to go to treatment. Now, this time they had something on me. And thank God, thank God. And I don't ever care how all of the, the maneuvering and the trying to slide out from under responsibilities that I was trying to do led me to be there in that moment for that 158 days where I did have that humbling experience. That was my journey. And it wasn't a pure journey to get there. It was a journey of self-preservation. I don't know many pure journeys to, to get to recovery. It's often that, at least in my experience, going to meetings and talking to other alcoholics that, you know, a lot of times people just wake up one day and decide they're not going to drink or go to start really going into AA. They, they, they have, sometimes there's a moment of pain or an issue that really can lead to that change. And that for me was, was being down there and realizing, look, man, you're in a mental institution. You can't go anywhere. This is pretty heavy. I like that you say that because you do hear a lot of stories where, and it does take that point of desperation and some people get to that desperation earlier or later, but it's good. I think for people to hear that you don't have to want it initially. It didn't sound like you wanted really to recover at that point. You wanted to look good. It sounded like, yeah, you were preserving the outside, but that didn't matter once you got to where you were supposed to be, those kind of layers of delusion were coming off. And do you have, it's okay if you don't, but do you have a specific moment when you were in rehab that you started to see the delusion coming off or you started to want it? Yeah. You know, I think there was, there was an exercise that we did and it was called down there. It was called your first step, but it was, it was basically listing out all, all of these consequences, all, just, just writing all these things out on paper and then talking to the group. And I do remember upon just hearing, hearing all of these stories out loud after telling other people, after watching their reaction, I think in that moment, at least I can, that movie Inside Out, that Pixar movie, we have his memory balls, you know, when something major happened. I, I do have a memory ball from that first step process kind of thinking that that's that was when it it really snapped for me and perhaps that was good that you know that's exactly what the exercise was for it still took a long time and i i am so impressed and amazed by the people that can can go to aa without going to treatment and get sober or that could go to treatment for 30 days that just wasn't my experience i remember being down there in treatment after that 30-day point, when we kind of all think about most people go to treatment before thinking, man, that's a good thing they aren't letting me free right now. I'm not in the least bit ready. How did that happen? So you got to treatment, and just for a disclaimer, LAP did not force you to go to treatment, right? There was a suggestion. <laughs> it was a suggestion, absolutely. It was, you it never- was a very strong suggestion. But the, remember, it was a suggestion that aligned with my self-preservation, which is my only motive at that point, self-preservation, perhaps self-preservation and then continuing to drink, right? Sure. Let's let's salt, let's clean this mess up, but let's not affect what the fun time is. So. So was it recommended that you go for 30 days or did you start out knowing you were going to be there for four months? It was recommended to me that it was, they told me it was a 90 day program. I thought, well, that's, that's okay. I got down there and they were suggesting, the folks down there were suggesting that that I stay longer. And by the time I had gotten to 90 days, I had been working with, they would send us out to 
work with uh, people coming out of detox and other other uh, facilities that were a little more hardcore. The service work in that kind of situation that that was meaningful enough for me that it was able to see how bad things were going to get, and I was able to stay there longer. And I'm glad I'm I'm really glad I did because you, you just didn't you had so much clarity to kind of see how this thing works for you. And to be able to recover, what I think a lot of people think about too, they're scared about leaving work. They're scared about leaving cases. But when you have that space and time, it's a lot easier to focus on those goals and then can also be scary to think about coming back to real life and still staying in the program and applying recovery to that. So how did that look when you got out of treatment and came back to your practice? Well, you know, it's amazing. The world was still there. <laughs> a terrible morbid exercise is to sit there and think, what if you die right now? What? Well, the world goes on. Everything goes on. And, and while I was gone, everything went on. I had great people at work that, that supported me. And, and, and even the folks that are out there that don't, that maybe are solo guys and gals, the, the bar program itself will put volunteers to help you with your practice if that were ever to happen. So the world didn't end and it was okay. It was absolutely okay. And I have, of course, had those same stresses. Uh, even I can remember a little bit on the flight now. What am I going to call that client? What are, they gonna, what are people going to say? And that's another thing. For, at least for me, thinking about what other people think of me has been one of my, you know, one thing that has always been a problem for me. I'm surprised you don't have the painting of Icarus up behind you oh. right now. Nicely done, Candace. <laughs> I know. Just had to drop that in. And I'll tell you, staying in recovery is really important, even if it's just reminders to, to know your own history, you know, to hear people in various states of recovery that you remember your state, you know, whether it would be the first part of recovery or the last, that connection with just one other person, I mean, that's the same crazy stuff that they're thinking about, you thought about, that is a relief that you're not alone. Definitely. And so when you, you came back, did you have a plan set up to kind of ensure your recovery and what role did that play with that? Sure. You know, I, when I mentioned before, when I was in law school, I had attempted some little form of recovery. I had been told, well, you got to change your people, places and things. Another one of these cliche things that we hear over and over again. And I didn't, didn't really buy into that, but I bought into that when I came back from treatment and as far as buying into, it made sense to me. I was able to connect when I got back with other lawyers, people I could relate to that were in recovery that I could hang out with and not look at ways that I was different, but I have ways that I was very similar. And then having, and I've told this a lot of other people in early recovery, your recovery network early on is to, at least in my experience was my most important part of staying sober is being surrounded by people, having a plan and being surrounded by other sober people that you can relate to there in your profession. When I came back, I did change my friends. I, there were several people that I did not reach out to and, you know, they certainly didn't reach out to me. And it's, you know, it, it, these people were not real friends anyway. I'm a big believer in that just simply because of my own personal experience coming into recovery, at least, you know, early on having a strong recovery network with your meetings, those recovery networks with people that you uh, can relate with, those are, to me, is what helped me stay sober. How mm-hmm. did your practice of law change 
obviously without drinking, but how did it change the way you practice law and deal with clients or was there any change? I know. I think there, there was, there's just, there's more ex- human experience. And I mean, addiction, if you've been in it and out of it, and then you're in law, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's given me an ability to have empathy and to relate, to understand behaviors of people more. We think about, we get mad at, sometimes we get mad at people, but maybe sometimes we're more mad at their disease or their mental illness. Sometimes people are not bad, they're just sick. And that concept was foreign to me. And to me, to have, to kind of be loaded up with some of those recovery concepts that I, I truly believe in and live has, has absolutely made me a, a better lawyer. I do. People hire me to solve their problems and they're all people problems. And it's a people practice. It's made me a better listener. It's made me more empathetic. That is a really huge concept that I think that people in recovery certainly learn about it, but it's so helpful mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a really difficult person to think of them and to treat them as you would a sick person. I wish more people had that concept that we learned in recovery because that was foreign to me as well. And man, it changes the way you communicate. And a lot of times, you know, the results you're getting back. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For sure. So are you currently a lap volunteer? Yes. And during your tenure as a lap volunteer, what kind of things have you enjoyed doing and what kind of things have you gotten benefit from? Part of the voluntary process that, of course, that I, that I enjoy the most is just really working with other people in various stages of their recovery. In recovery, helping others is one of the main ways that we stay sober. Again, it's just this reminder of the space, the reminder of my story. Because of that mind of mine that I'm special and I can do, it, it's still there. and it, I still have to acknowledge that addict demon in there. And if, that, if there is not enough talking out loud about it, shining the dark flashlight in the dark corners of my mind, then, then it, can, it can take over a little bit. And that, that's the, to me, these are the reasons why ongoing recovery, ongoing service through um, volunteers that, you know, that, that we get to hang out and not only helping out with the folks coming in new, it's just another opportunity to be around again, like I mentioned earlier, other folks that are sober and they have, that have a life are happy to talk to you about it. So anytime you can be around a group of folks like that, it's always positive. Well, thank you so much for your service as a volunteer and for talking to me today. Of course, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Candice. Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.